the Incomparable Podcast, number 50, August 2011. We're back for part two of the Incomparable's view into the films of Pixar Animation Studios. So we're going to get back into our likes, our dislikes, scenes that really creep us out, stuff like that. Um, I'm joined again. I'm Jason Snell, the host of The Incomparable. I'm joined by Steve Lutz. You're back for more punishment. Welcome. Aged one week since the last time we yes. spoke of Pixar. It, it's funny how that works. And again, John Syracuse. John, thanks for coming back for part two. I don't know if I can even remember what we were talking about. What did we talk about in part one? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I think it was... It was, Something. Uh, uh, yeah, mm, it's all a blur now. I think it was all about Steve Jobs uh, and Ed Catmull. That's what it was. Something like Jeffrey that. Katzenberg? What? Yes. Pixar. Pixar. Right. Yeah. All right, let's get back to it. Let's go around one more time more quickly uh, to to do This Is Our Lightning Round, another movie that you'd like to say something kind of in favor of that's a Pixar movie. Steve, do you have another one you'd like to call out just for a few words of encouragement? Yeah, it's uh, actually... In the run-up to this podcast, as I said, I just watched up for the first time a couple nights ago, and I actually just watched Wally uh, about two weeks ago, and I really liked it. I, I get where you're coming from, John, where you say the, the message is heavy-handed, and it definitely goes off the rails in the second act. I think it was a bit jarring to have real-life people, as much as I like Fred Willard, Fred Willard, to have him be in the video screens and then have the people be animated is just kind of this weird cognitive dissonance there that I it throws me for a bit of a loop. But that opening sequence with, with Wally and Eve and then the subsequent sequence in space where they're doing their little dance through space is just so beautiful that it, it it's a near masterpiece, I think, to me, that is, that's only really ruined by... Um, a slightly disappointing ending that that's cleaned up maybe a little too too uh too rapidly and quickly and you, you don't really have enough time to get a feel for the the villains and the the other human characters but but the the, the Wally and the um and and Eve sequences and and just the way that they they brought Wally to life and made him so uh relatable is just so impressive to me that uh that I I really enjoyed the film and uh and I I definitely think it it deserves if not masterpiece status, then very close to it. I agree about, I mean, the opening is, um, I, you know, I could argue that, yeah, the first 10 or 15 minutes of Wally is the best 10 or 15 minutes that Pixar has done. And it's hard, it's kind of hard to top and the plot is harmless and it's, yeah, the message is a little over the overbearing. Um, I, I think I might argue that that's the best looking Pixar movie. I love how it looks the whole thing. From I love the design of the spaceship. I, I love the design of the 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 you know wrecked, dirty Earth that's being picked up, and Wally's little shed, and the robots. Um, and it sounds great. I mean, it's such a and they made a roach likable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a great technical achievement, and and the the silent opening, you know, the dialogueless opening is so brilliant that you know I'm willing to forgive it. It's missteps you know, plot wise and it's sort of, you know, a little too much, uh, heavy handedness with the message just because it is so, you know, it, it's Wally is so likable, you know, your main character that can't speak <laughs> and, and there's so much good in it. Um, even though it's, it's much more like that kind of movie, right. Where it's, where it's kind of right. like got some good and some bad rather than it just being solid all the way through. 
I also wanted to mention just a quick shout out to something that's that's usually kind of ignored, but the little sequence over the end credits at the end of Wally, I think, is yes. really really strong. Beautiful, where they go through the uh, the cave paintings and sort of the resurgence of man as he as he becomes, uh, you know, he goes through his various stages of growth right. again. And, over the Peter Gabriel song, yeah, right. Which yeah, which which is. A little distracting because it's one of those things where you know it's clearly Peter Gabriel, but then again, it's not Randy Newman, so I guess yeah, it was. It was <laughs> I a can give it thing. that. But the, I mean, but the, yeah, and the lyrics cool. of that song really kind of match. I mean, that, that's a case where they did some work where the lyrics really match what you're seeing in the right in the in the credits, and uh, yeah, it works really well. Can I say bad things about Wally before I say good Please. something else? So I have a little, I have a little bit more trouble forgiving Wally, mostly because, like you mentioned, that the designs and everything is good in that movie. I agree, except the humans, and I don't want the humans in that movie right. at all because I was interested in the robot and this future dystopia and his problems, and like I don't, I didn't see a place. I, I don't think you needed humans in there. I would have just been happy if big fat human blobs, right. It almost would have been better if they had been brought to the spaceship and, and they could have come up with some clever way to avoid ever seeing the humans while still knowing they were there. Or just have them be in, like, cryo-freeze. All the humans are gone and robots are there, and the, the robots were sent down because the robots are trying to recolonize and he would be rejoined by robot. Like, his dilemma, our main character that we're with, is I am alone, I'm in, a bad, I'm in this bad place, and I'm trying to do all this, do what I think I'm supposed to do, but it's just a, a, an impossible task, and now a visitor comes, and finally I'm not alone, but it's intriguing, and she's different, and like, that's the story. I don't want to hear about fat people who, don't, who float around <laughs> on chairs. I don't want to hear about pollution. You know what Although I mean? where do you fit Ratzenberger so, in then if you do that? Ah, uh, yeah, there's always a place. <laughs> you can take the Fred Willard. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't want to oh, bag on Wally too much because that first half really is great. Uh, no, but you're right. Pick, they could have just had them be in cryo suspension and have it be like, well, you know, people they were they, people got fat and tired, and we just we, they they decided to wait it out. You don't even frozen. need to do the fat thing. The, the people could all be dead, and you could have AI, the emergence of AI. The whole <laughs> right. th the whole thing is about you know because do we need people? We have these characters who we relate to who have everything that people have. There's no reason to have people now. Well, this is something that you mentioned in your in your uh, hypercritical podcast is is. Uh, the question – they've got this whole story process at Pixar. They do seem to take risks. They make these amazing movies, and sometimes you wonder if they didn't quite take enough of a risk. And I think this is one of those cases where as they they felt like they took a risk – it's almost like they mitigated their lack of risk-taking in the whole movie by doing the big risk with the dialogue list first 15 minutes. But the real risk would have been to say, you know what? There are no people. There is no dialogue. It is all robots. And they didn't do that. They kind of stuck the fat people in there with a fairly easy kind of a satirical message. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure it was really necessary. You know, I don't think having no dialogue was that much of a risk because kids of all people get – I mean, Tom and Jerry has no dialogue. You know That's what I mean? That's my son's favorite cartoon. Kids of all people get uh, pantomime and, like, they don't need dialogue. In fact, dialogue is a distraction for them. Uh, and the the risk wasn't so much that they weren't going to have people because, you know, Cars has no people. Toy Story has limited people. Like, the, toy, the thing is that Pixar tends to make inanimate objects or other things that aren't people people-like. But these robots in WALL-E were not people-like. Right. And, you know, like, they were – I mean, obviously they were – were intelligent and, the and, and actors, but <laughs> but they were 
they were different. They were alien some, somewhat. They didn't act exactly like people. They didn't talk. They didn't express things the same way. You know, Wally didn't say anything at all. Eve spoke very differently and had very different attitude. You know, they had personalities, but they had machine personalities. And that would have been the risk to say, we're not going to take a robot and make it just like your neighbor Jim. There's not going to be neighbor Jim robot. Robots are robots, and they are intelligent beings in this universe and they, and they have, have emotions they have feelings and emotions but they're a little bit different than you a little bit alien that would have been you know the suspending someone in an entire movie where everything is slightly alien that probably would have been a risk uh and yeah. and just to just to since we talked about the thing i said hypercritical i'll give the, the quick summary of it here and and the cars two thing my, my argument was that pixar before cars 2 by making a series uh, by never making a bad movie they had figured out how to engineer the process to avoid making a bad movie, but it was preventing them from make a tra- making a transcendently good movie. And my, my comparison was that if you asked John Lasseter, have you ever made a movie that's better than the best Miyazaki movie? I think he would say no. And it's because Miyazaki is not afraid to make a stinky movie, but his great movies are really great because he's willing to try and do things that are way outside the norm, whereas I feel like Pixar keeps itself within semi-well-defined boundaries, making a series of great movies and some really great ones, but the best of Pixar, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of the people who work at Pixar, is not better than the best Miyazaki movie. They just have a massively higher average. There's probably some sports analogy that Jason can make at this point. Yeah, it's value over replacement player with a Park neutral? No, I got. No, the, uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to make the, some sort of Yankee slam. The, the only argument I'd make is that is the um, is the Incredibles is a great, I think, a great movie. Oh yeah, no, I'm not I'm not saying. I'm just, I'm such a, but it's not. I'm such a huge Miyazaki fan, and yeah. so is John Lasseter. That's why I'm making that particular comparison. And the Incredibles, I think, one of the reasons it's great is that it, it's got it's got Brad Bird, right? I mean, it, it, it is a, it is the one example. If you look at the Wikipedia page for Pixar, a list of Pixar films, you know, it's the only movie that they've made where the writer and director and story is one guy and it's Brad Bird. That's his movie. He made that movie. Right. He owns it. It's his. And, um, I think that may be the reason, one of the reasons why it's so great. It's not that it wasn't a team effort, but there there was actually some singular vision in it. Right. It that, wasn't a, a movie by committee. And he, and Brad Bird had come to Pixar, right? So he, he hadn't been there before. He wasn't part he of that process. So, so it, that in itself is maybe telling that their greatest work is an outlier. And it, and, and it's not a, a, a result of the process in the same way that all the other movies are. Although I would say like, if, you say, oh, it's not a movie by committee. If you look at that same Wikipedia page and list, like, that's a hell of a committee. I mean, oh, it's a great committee. You, got, you know, you got, you, got, you, got, you got John Lasseter and, and Peter Doctor and, you know, it's like Andrew yeah, Stanton. Andrew Stanton, yeah. If you want to have a committee of three or four people, it's not bad having them in your committee. Well, it's not, and that's why they know, make all good that's movies, why they right? make That's why they make good movies, and most of the time they make great movies. But, they, you know, to, to punch through, you, you, need to be able, you need to be willing to risk to make a dud because Miyazaki has made some movies that are just like – no, you didn't quite make it or it didn't quite connect or it's just a little bit too weird or it fails in one obvious way or another that any of these story committees of these three or four amazingly talented Pixar guys would have would have told Miyazaki, yeah, here's where your movie's falling apart and would have tried to fix it. Uh, but that doesn't happen. It's Studio Ghibli, apparently, uh, and he just gets to make whatever the hell he wants and it, it lets him make those transcendent ones. And the whole thing was like, oh, you're just asking for a failure. Well, Cars 2, isn't that your failure that you wanted? Uh I haven't seen Cars 2 yet. If Cars 2 failed because it was too ambitious, then yes. But I have a feeling it did not fail because it was too ambitious. I have a feeling it's 
I don't think it's probably going to end up being a failure at all. When I watch it, I think I'm going to say that was an okay movie. I think it was just probably too conventional, right? too timid, too... I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. It's hard for me to say, but my... I haven't seen it either. I was disappointed when the trailer came out because I wasn't aware that they were actually making Cars 2. And I was disappointed because I felt it was a failure of ambition, not because the movie wouldn't necessarily be... Uh, creative and they, it sounds like they made a very different movie from cars that it's more of a sort of spy inflected and yeah. international kind of movie and and maybe it's a lot of fun but and i i know some people at pixar but i i don't know any behind the scenes and i feel you know I, it, it's difficult for me to put to make a guess about what the internal struggle is about this but it's very hard for me to look at cars 2's existence and not think well cars was the pet project of the guy who runs the studio john lassiter it's he's a car nut it's his favorite subject and now they're making a sequel hard for me to not look at that and say maybe they're not making this for the right reasons maybe they're making this because he's the boss and he loves this and they're gonna do it again and part of it's just because cars is my least favorite pixar movie by far not that it's bad but it's my least favorite and of all the movies for them to make a, a sequel to next for it to be cars, it's like really when you've got Monsters Incorporated, when you've got uh, the Incredibles, you know, it, you've got so many other choices, and it's cars too. It just seems so easy, and it's got you know marketing potential because kids can make you know you can make cars that kids can play with, and 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 you know again, it just seemed like such a safe choice for them when they ought to be doing more original things. Well, the money angle is the, the one convincing part of that. Not so much the boss's whims. It's just that car merchandise has been selling just like it's opening weekend for the original cars for years. Right. It's it's not like, you know, the movie comes out, everyone buys the dolls, and you forget about it in a year. Cars merchandise is still selling strongly. Oh, we've got, uh, we've I, got two maters in our house. <laughs> oh, I've, I don't even know how many oh maters God. I have. So the fact that this merchandise has been selling so well years after the movie has been out, you know – without even the sequel hyping it up or anything, you could consider this like this is their funding the rest of their more ambitious projects. And and the thing about Cars 2 is when I saw they were making Cars 2, I felt the same way. But then I thought, well, they made Toy Story 2, and I thought that was going to be a disaster. Yeah. Sure as heck wasn't, you know? Like, why don't make sequelitis. Don't make sequels at all. So I said, well, fine. I, I'm going to give this movie the benefit of the doubt because uh, – you know, I thought Toy Story 2 was going to be stupid, and why make a sequel? Or Toy Story 3, for that matter. Are they making a third Toy Story? Don't they have enough Toy Stories? But again, they made a Toy good movie Story 4, purportedly on the way. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, until they make a bad one, you know, it's it's just because it's a sequel, I don't I don't fault them for it, because you can make sequels good. Uh, and again, I haven't seen the movie, but even if it just turns out to be a so-so kids movie, uh if it makes them a lot of money and it funds their more ambitious projects, I'm all for it. Uh, it did. Again, it's hard to talk about this without seeing it. I, I don't think it did make. I, I think it's actually no, not end up from being... the toys, not the movie. Oh yeah, well, that's true. From to the toys. Where the real money from the movie is made. Come on, <laughs> oh, the merchandising. Yeah. Um, John, do you have a uh, another Pixar that you'd like to touch on? Yeah, the, the one I want to talk about is uh, Finding Nemo, and uh, it's. I, I love Finding Nemo. I think it's a great, great movie. movie. I think it's one of the one of the funniest. Pixar. I find myself laughing at uh, Ellen DeGeneres in that movie more than uh, Where more than I should. Is <laughs> the yeah? I, I don't know if it's the writing or her delivery. I just find her very funny, and I think her performance is great. But that's not why I want to highlight this movie. I want to highlight it because it marked the first time that I really noticed Pixar really coming into its own, deciding that they were going to 
so previously they'd been using animation for the things that animation is good at. And in Finding Nemo, they said, you know what? We can do the things that people who make like historical pictures or like uh, romances or travel movies can do. Having beautiful things, having the scenery be beautiful and having that add to the movie. Like when you're watching a particular movie and they show a sunset or people are driving through Africa or whatever, that adds to the movie. And they said, we don't have to be timid making rigid body things inside a building with, with lighting from a light bulb in the middle of the room. We can make beautiful, natural things. We can have, and that can add to the movie, not just, you know, don't just do enough to get it done. Make have shots where you dwell on. Look at this beautiful place where these things live. Um, and even though it's not like that wasn't the focus of Finding Nemo, and it wasn't about the beauty of the ocean, that's the first time that I think their their technology and their ambition combined to let them realize that, that they can do that with movies. That you know every movie doesn't have to be about that, but that but that you can do that. So if if it's appropriate for the story, uh, have the equivalent of the magic hour in your movies because it adds to the experience. And when I think of Finding Nemo, that's what I think about. I think about those various water scenes and the fish. And even during the credits, they had the those little scenes with the things waving in the water and everything. Uh, I, I think that makes it stand out. From And I hope, I hope they're going to do something similar with Brave because they have a similar type of environment there, but we'll see. The beautiful movie and the, the fact that you, you never really forget that you're in the water, but... Um, it, and the quality of the water and the quality of the fish tank with the junk in it. And yeah. I mean, there's just, yeah, there, Nemo, I believe was, um, it was the number one for a while was the highest gro- grossing Pixar movie until story, Toy Story three came out. And, um, and you know, rightfully a hit because yeah, it's a, it's, it's just a great movie. I think it's easy to overlook it because you know, well, it's Nemo, but it, it's, it's, it's great, and my kids to this day um, can't see a clownfish in a fish tank without yep. proclaiming it Nemo. There's a problem. We apologize for the extinction of the clownfish. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the, yeah, and funny, and again, you get the um, – Pixar has this tendency to t- kind of, I think, say, well, we – we're going to alternate between the kind of main storyline and the the kind of wackier, zanier story, which might not work as a whole story, but we're, we're going to have it. And so Nemo himself in the fish tank with his cast of wacky characters like Allison Janney is in there and Brad Garrett is in there and uh, Jesus, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, I thought it was Willem Dafoe as the the leader of the fish tank. You know, that's wacky with, with interesting characters. That's, that's like really kind of wacky stuff. And... Uh, and then there's the the main kind of quest story, which has also got Ellen DeGeneres, who's really funny, and Albert Brooks again, well known person, comedian, funny, but not you know just there being Albert Brooks. Um, and no kid, no kid knows who Albert Brooks is. <laughs> no, no, yes, that's it. We'll, we'll we'll make a fortune. We'll have Albert Brooks headline our yeah. animated kids movie. Brilliant. All right. Well, for my second round pick, I am gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with Toy Story two. Um, to our point about sequels and being disappointed in sequels, um, this was going to be a direct-to-video sequel, I think, and uh, and at some point somebody saw it and said, "No, this is good. This should be an actual." It might have even been Steve Jobs. No, it was it was, it was the reverse. That Disney was going to make Toy Story two, and it was a piece of crap. And they said, uh, "Let's make an actual Toy Story two. Toy Story three was even worse, where they threw the entire movie. Yeah, Toy Story two was sort of. The plan was to make it crappy, and Pixar said, no, 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 no. 
We're not. We're not. We don't make a crappy movie. We're making a good one. Toy Story three. They started to make yes, a crappy movie, they, they and then they got did. acquired, and, and then threw out the crappy movie. First I don't know how did. far Toy Story you got. So Toy Story two. Um, interesting. You know, they went back and they made Bugs Life, and they're like, "Well, we're going back. and We're making a sequel to Toy Story." But it 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 tells a new story. It expands the world. It is the first punch in the gut of many to come yes with that and one of the best i think maybe the best when she loved me the song by randy newman that's performed by sarah mclaughlin over over jesse the cowgirl story of uh you know basically toy story three is that song in an entire movie <laughs> and and <laughs> and it's you know and it's that's sad at points too but it, that this is the first time we got that kind of unexpected punch in the gut emotionally, um, and you know it's got Kelsey Grammer is in lives in a box, and <laughs> it's got Wayne Knight as the crazy collector, which says something about like how not to view a toy. I have a I have a toy on my shelf in my in my house that's a uh, it's it's a Micronaut actually, but it's a replica. And it's still in the box. And every time my kids say, we need to get that out of the box, I think, God, I I, I am like the old prospector in Toy Story 2. <laughs> I am mint in the box. It's it be, never been opened. It's, it's a toy that hasn't been played with. It's a horrible perversion, and I ought to just rip it out of the box. You are Stinky Pete the podcaster. I am I am Stinky Pete. That's right. The, stinky Pete the podcaster. Stinky podcaster. <laughs> So Toy Story 2 didn't didn't have to be it didn't have to be good at all. I believe it's 100% Rotten Tomatoes, right? It's not just good. It's great. It's it's got emotional depth that the first movie didn't didn't even have. It's still I think one of Pixar's very best, um which is saying a lot because it was early and I think it's to be preferred over Toy Story 3 as well. Yeah, and I like Toy Story 3 a lot. And there's a scene, you know, the one of the most recent punches in the gut is that scene in Toy Story 3 at the end right. um, where basically uh, something else my wife and I were talking about is that's the scene that basically is we're all going to die. There's nothing you can do about it. You might as well make friends with the people that you've got in life because in the end we're all going to die and there's nothing you can do and it's inevitable <laughs> and oh God, oh God, we're doomed. And they actually have that whole moment, and then it's like, oh, and then they're, and then kids, they're saved. That's right. Everything will be fine, and they will live happily ever <laughs> after. And meanwhile, all the parents in the movie are like, oh, God. Oh, <laughs> we're doomed. Oh, it's ruined. Yeah. See, the thing with three for me, though, is the same thing that the same issue that I sort of have with Up, which is that we're bookended by these really great emotional moments, and then the middle is this kind of pedestrian uh, jailbreak movie. And and so much of it is just a rehash of the character interactions that we've seen in the first Nate two films. Nate Beatty is like a sadistically manipulative teddy bear. I mean, right? No, no, that's... it's great. It's very good. That that that's a it's a very good jailbreak <laughs> film. But in contrast to Toy Story two, which I think is strong end to end, and it carries that emotional depth as kind of an undercurrent. You know, obviously peaking at the when she loved me moment. But I mean, the 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 whole film is kind of a. a I mean, as soon as 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 we we have uh, uh, Woody meeting the rest of the Roundup gang, you know, you've got this this sense of loss and loneliness and uh, and uh, and the abandonment um, that the other characters felt, you know, when when everybody loved Woody and nobody cared about Bullseye and Stinky Pete and, uh, and Jesse, um, Jesse, 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 yes, 
and uh, and and it I think it's it's just so much of a stronger film because it it holds on to that the whole way. Whereas Toy Story three, you know, again I think is is in parts that good, and then kind of loses it for me in the middle. So yeah, it's easily the strongest I think of the Toy Stories. Yeah, that's the problem with the Toy Story franchise is that they are they're running out of things for the characters to do. First movie was about uh, was about Woody, you know, and the Invader and Buzz. Second movie, you had Woody and Buzz together facing a challenge. But the secondary characters have always just kind of been there for gags. And we're kind of running out of – we're running out of character development for, for Woody. Right. How many more slinkies are long jokes can you make? Yeah. For Woody and Buzz, we're running out of things for their characters to do. They both have relationships that have sort of been established with these other, you know, Bo Peep went away and everything. But and but the side characters had never been truly solid characters, and they needed to give them something to do in Toy Story 3. But Toy Story 3 was more about Andy's relationship with the toys, uh, you know, as pantomimed through the toys' actions, you know. It was kind of a mirror image where at the end of the movie, the boy has to go through the same type of thing that the toys themselves had to go to being abandoned, so on and so forth. But if, in a four, what do you do with these characters? Like the know. ones that we cared about were, were Woody, Buzz, his relationship with, with Andy and Andy's fan. Like that whole – everything seems to be all tied up and now you have yeah. to like come up with some sort of new thing. Seems like a mistake to me. Toy Story, the next generation. <laughs> a whole new – group of toys now the girl that they're left with in in the box at the end of toy story 3 now she'll be going off to school and will be sad again yeah but like but now they're old hat like now they've been through it before now they're more of the grizzled veteran toys where they understand that you you know this was their first owner you get the impression andy was their first owner and this is the sort of the arc of the toys life and encountering these other toys who have been through that arc once before and come out worse for it Shows like now here's our our heroes coming out of it and understanding that they don't have to be bitter like the bear. You know, it just seems like there's not much for them to go, uh, right. not, not not much of a new place for them to go with with a four. Right. But, well, mine. You know, the only thing you can really do is introduce a whole batch of new characters, and and that's going to be a disaster before it even starts. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you make a new ca- cast of characters, you, if you decide to make an entirely new movie, then that's fine. You're just kind of making a new movie. You happen to using toys as uh, actors. Uh, you could do that successfully and just capitalize on Toy Story brand. But uh, but I don't know. The other thing I want to say, speaking of the, the montage with Jesse, uh, is that my challenge to Pixar is the things they do in those montages uh, where there's just music and and scenes and stuff like that where you're you're experiencing something they're they're trying to show you the loss of, you know, loss of innocence, people getting older, that type of thing. Look viewed from the perspective of a, of a situation that will never will never be in. So it's like kind of an allegory like the toy, the person growing up not wanting to play with the toy. People can relate that to real situations in their life and their own relationships, but it's but it's a it's by way of an analogy and it's done in montage. My challenge for them would to be to do a scene like that that has a similar message but not as a montage and head on. And that's really hard to do. Like the greatest of the greatest movies have emotional scenes between peoples where they're really talking about what they're talking about. And it's not reminding you of something because it's uh, an allegory or a fable or a fantastical situation. That's like a real one or whatever. I think they, they, they're not that they're shying away from, but I think they can do it. Like you can make, you can make that the text and not have it be the subtext. Uh, and still pull it off. I, I totally believe that they have the strength to do that thus far. Maybe it's because they make kid movies or whatever. They've mostly shied away from it, and most have come at it at an angle. Sometimes when you come at an angle, that's how it catches you, because, like, we don't care that this toy is missing its owner, like, or its owner is growing up and not being interested in playing with it again, because we're, you know, we're 
that's not the text of the story is not what we're getting upset about. It's the, you know, what it's relating to. If you gave us a real scene where someone was in a relationship that was drifting apart or whatever, a whole movie about that, we'll, we'll accept that too. It's just so much harder to do. So not that they're cheating so much, but that the music backed montage triggering childhood feelings is, even though they do it so well, it's, there's a degree of difficulty that's not there that, you know, they want to go up to the next level, like right. do it for real, do it head on, make that the story. Right. And probably the closest they've come to that with, it would be with the Incredibles, with the whole dynamic that, uh, that the, that Mr. Right. Incredible and Elastigirl have at, at home. And I think that's probably why that is so strong. Right. Or again, the, the Elastigirl wrapping around the people like that's, that was, that's head on. That's not reminding you of what it's like to protect your children. It's, that's the story. She's doing that in the story. So one of my questions I, that I was going to get to at the very end, I thought I'd ask now because of what John just said, which is what I, I want to know what you think Pixar should do next. Not necessarily their very next movie, because we know that's going to be Brave, which is set in Scotland and has a female protagonist. Uh, and the, I, it looks like, according to the Wikipedia and Wikipedia doesn't lie. There is a Monsters, Inc. sequel in the offing. I'm just looking more generally. Where should Pixar go next? What what would you like to see Pixar do? Maybe outside their comfort zone a little bit. What you know? What would you like to see from them that um you know as a, as the next big thing that that makes you sit up and say, oh, I you know this is something new from Pixar. One of the things that I think John mentioned in his podcast that that I, I thought about is doing something that's really uh through and through a PG movie or a, or even an r but let's just say a pg because i don't think they'll ever do an r but a, a pg movie, something that is in a, a genre that they're not comfortable with i mean john mentioned uh you know that the, they took a shot at a romantic comedy and they ended up kind of killing it or or, or a, a kind of a, a kind of noirish detective kind of thing I, I just i wonder if they there is something outside of their comfort zone that they uh that they could do that would be you know interesting to see I'm also interested in the fact that Andrew Stanton is directing John Carter of Mars, I guess has directed, which is coming out next year, um, that's for Disney. So it's not really Pixar, but there are an awful lot of Pixar names in the credits, and that's a live-action sci-fi movie. And, and Did you see the uh, trailer for that? I yeah. did. I did. Tim Riggins has come a long way from Dillon, <laughs> Texas to yeah, that's, that's pulling me out of it a little bit to Mars, but uh, <laughs> but on one level, I, I'm fascinated by that because I wonder is this in some ways the first live action Pixar movie? A little bit, maybe maybe just a little. And I think uh, doesn't um, Brad Bird have a live action movie too that he's working on? So it's, I'm kind of fascinated by that that these animation Brad directors... Bird's doing uh, Mission Impossible, isn't he? You're right. He is. He's doing Mission right. Impossible Four, which which yeah. um, I wouldn't be excited about. But when I think Mission Impossible. From the director of The Incredibles. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, Brad, Bird. Brad Bird can do anything, and I'll watch it at this point. He's yeah. on that level. But some of the suggestions I made in my podcast kind of still stand. And I was what I was trying to do on mine was come up with the most ridiculous things I could think of. Like, I would immediately say, uh, you know, go rated R, uh, go photorealistic, uh, which no one dares do because it's so hard to do. But, like, at a certain point... It's going to be there for the taking, uh, you know, n not cartoonish things, real anatomy, real physics, 100% photorealistic. Wally -E was really close. It's easier to do machines, but the opening sequences of Wally, -E, most nothing on the screen really reads as a cartoon. 
even the cockroach is pretty realistic looking, but, uh, but eventually it's going to be sitting there right in front of you. And it's going to be like, so do we, you know, we can do it now. We've got subsurface scattering. We can do skin that doesn't look like plastic. Do you, do we want to go full photo? But, but what I've thought now thinking more about this is that it's probably best for them to sneak up on it. And the, the easiest way for them to transition into things that are outside their comfort zone, I feel like is sci-fi. Uh, and it's, not hard sci-fi, but serious sci-fi, where there's yeah, at least as serious sci-fi as, say, like The Wrath of Khan or Empire Strikes Back, where, yeah, it's a fun, relatively lighthearted movie, but it's not really a kid's movie. It's a little bit too intense for kids, and give it a sort of a dark sci-fi premise. Uh, that would be a way I think Pixar can find its way out of the child movie ghetto by having a PG-13 or a PG, but have it be sort of a gritty, dark sci-fi action adventure movie that reads like that you that you'd watch the same way you would watch, you know, Empire Strikes Back or something like that. I can't I don't think of a better darker side. Maybe Blade not Runner. Blade Runner, but not that dark. Like not, <laughs> not a mood piece like Blade Runner, but like you know, just just a good a sci-fi movie for teenagers and adults. That's not not for kids. And sci-fi is not that far from their comfort zone, right. I feel. And they haven't really done, with the exception of Wally, they haven't really, really done that. Like uh, new IP, you know, or don't don't or make it a make it a uh, make it an adaptation of something that's not well known. Don't pick another Philip K. Dick story, uh, and just come out with something like that to to say that boy, there's this really great sci-fi movie that's it's not like transformers that's an actual great movie and also happens to be science fiction that science fiction fans like sort of like what game of thrones has done for fantasy you know what i mean where game of thrones is a fantasy thing but it, it's it raises to the level of the best of television dramas well they can make a sci-fi movie that raises to the level of the best of you know action adventure science fiction human drama movies it just happens to be sci-fi that i think is their way in versus going all the way for the uh, you know, photorealistic murder mystery noir thing, which I think might be because the people would say like, "Oh, we can't take it seriously." Like, you can't, you right. know, or say, you know, make Schindler's List, but with CG. You know, you, you can't, said it, you said can't it get there in a world that is not even close to being our world. So people are a little more accepting of the deviations from reality. Right. Suspension of disbelief is already there. Right, but but still have it be you know a, a real real live movie for adults not a kids movie very you know do with try to do it with no comedy relief like that would be the challenge for pixar because pixar everything they do there's something like funny or wry about it can you make a good quality movie without lots of humor it's possible especially in sci-fi you can make a good exciting action adventure sci-fi movie that's not funny joke time right it can have some jokes in it but it needs to be more than that like Serenity is actually a pretty good movie, but it's got it's got jokes in it. But well, it's the, not the, the Whedon point. the Whedon is deep down in that one. It's yes. not, everything Whedon it's done has some, some it's sort true. of I could, humor. I, I wouldn't advocate Serenity being the model for a Pixar sci-fi movie, but it's it springs to mind as a fun sci-fi yeah. movie that's still got some jokes in it. But that's not the not the point. Yeah. I keep going back to Empire, which we'll eventually podcast yeah. about, which has has jokes in it and is funny but takes itself 100% seriously. Yes. Like it, it's, it takes itself seriously as a movie and yes. all possible levels. And I think they can make a science fiction movie that's not derivative of anything. If, if they, again, if they get a, a, the equivalent of Brad Bird, who has this great idea for an awesome sci-fi movie that takes itself seriously, and he's super talented like Brad Bird, there you go. All right. 
Well, I'd, I'll pick up where you left off, Jason, and say I'd like to see what would happen if they tried their hand at a live-action film. I mean, obviously, the animation is, is what they became known for, and it was really their calling card. And now they've excelled at it to such an extent that you almost watch the film and forget that it's animated at times. And that's really what's so impressive about it. And you'll, you'll step back once in a while and you'll look at uh, the, the, say, like the Paradise Falls Vista and Up, or again, all of the, the great underwater stuff in Finding Nemo. And you'll go, wow, that's, that's really impressive stuff. But the reason Pixar films are so great is not because of the animation. It's not because the animation is so fantastic and well done. It's because the story and the process that they, they put together to come up with the story and the scripting and the characters is, is so fantastically conceived. And I'd be really curious to see what would happen if they took that same process and, uh, and applied it to live action. I mean, and we've seen, you know, how close to, to storyboards films can look these days with CGI and whatnot, you know, with, uh, with Watchmen, Watchmen and other comic book films that, that uh, are almost note-for-note note copies from comic book panels, for instance. Uh, you know, so I think, I think they could really um, almost go down to that level that they do with the animation where they, they storyboard every single scene and every single, you know, facial tick. And, uh, and I don't know, maybe to some extent the actors would rebel at the fact that they were being told to, you know, follow uh, such a strict uh, formula. But... Um, I think they could end up with something very interesting if they went down that path. I, it, what you said actually makes me think the other the other thing they could do, and I'm not sure whether there's a good creative reason to do this or not, but you know, history is littered with attempts to combine live action with animation, and Roger oh. Roger Rabbit is an example, and you know, <laughs> yeah. Dick Van Dyke dancing with. Yeah, know. no, I think they they pretty much peaked with that with the uh, the Incredible Mr. Limpet, and it's all been downhill since then. Well, I think of something like uh, what if Sky what Captain? if they count a good world you know well sky captain interesting what if they found a a good way to kind of mix them together beyond fred willard showing up on a on a screen some way to 300 yeah well i mean yeah there are I'm lots of think of examples there are lots of theoretically live action movies that are that are, that are mostly cg practically animated i mean the star wars sorry the star wars prequels i have to mention it here i mean <clears> there are whole sections of that that i look at and i just think you know, the pod this, race. this is an animated feature at this point. The yeah. pod race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the... Uh, the pod race, the... I think, is the most successful because, like, the close-up scenes of that stupid kid look horrible, and the whole rest of the thing, which only exists in a computer, <laughs> looks great. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it wouldn't be that much for them to cross over into something that is indescribable about whether it's an animated film or live action. But, and, but you're still saying human human actors. You're still saying like that's that's the where the line is drawn. Where it's like, well, your main character is a human being, and maybe you film them in front of a green screen, and it's all stylized like 300 or, or Sin City or something like that. Or maybe that's uh, your sci-fi end, movie you know, where it's where it's there are human characters who are humans, but there are alien characters who are going to be CGI anyway, except that they're uh, they're Pixar I, animated I, characters. I saw the, the the waters of Mars. I saw uh, John Carter of Mars or John Carter or whatever they're playing. Called. I saw that trailer and that was my that didn't look too great to me. Like no. I don't. I would rather see them do the Final Fantasy Spirits Within thing the right way two decades, three decades later. Just like, fully that's what I'm CGI. Saying. Yeah, that eventually it's going to be there for the taking. 
don't make it with humans if you're afraid. Make the entire thing, make like, you know, a deepness in the sky, but with no humans, you know? Like, if you're afraid of making humans, right. then pick something else first, but, or make your humans slightly stylized or something, but, but look like real living things, like Dobby or something, you know? Like, they're strange looking. If we, I, I believe the highest grossing film of all time is essentially a sci fi movie with live action and animated people put together, which is Avatar. So maybe that's been done. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I just think it's harder to do. I think Pixar's strength is because that's the whole thing. All their worlds are of a piece and a consistent. Fred Willard aside, <laughs> you know that they're they're all together. I love and that. I think it's Fred Willard. Eventually, <laughs> poor guy. Eventually, why? They why is have, it Fred Willard? Uh, yeah. It should be John Ratzenberger. Damn it! It should be nobody. You know, you know, speaking of that, the first time I saw it, yeah, I'm like, what the hell, right? But the second time I saw it, <laughs> didn't even register. Didn't even register that it was live action. I guess I had already gotten over the shock, and somehow it actually fit into the movie uh -huh. the second and third and fourth time. Like, I don't know why it fits in. And I, the fact that they picked him as the actor, that fits too. Like, he does oh, yeah. his little shtick. I'm like, yeah, you know, he's my favorite human in the movie. Well, I actually thought it was pretty cool until I, until I realized we were going to see animated people later, and that's what killed it for yeah. me. Yeah. Last thing I wanted to, to do was go around and talk about I want to turn negative. I want to go I want to go negative, full on negative. I, I want you to select a movie or part of a movie, some something in Pixar that we haven't covered yet, um, ideally, that is um your least favorite thing that Pixar has done. Who would like to be negative? Alright, I'll go first. I, I've I've got uh this is probably isn't fair because I've only seen this movie I think twice. Uh or maybe three times. But it's not one that we own, so I haven't seen it a thousand times. But I can say this movie sticks with me the least, uh, and I don't. I don't think it's a bad movie. Like it's not. It's not actively bad. Nothing in it I can point to that. It just. It, it just. It just doesn't work for me. I guess. And that movie is Ratatouille. It's the only movie uh, we haven't yet mentioned all this time talking, and it hasn't come up. Yeah. Now it has its moments. It certainly looks beautiful. I, I I appreciate what it's trying to do, but it just does not hold together as a, as a cohesive movie for me that I'm interested in or that I find myself thinking about or coming back to or wanting my children to watch or anything like that. So that's like the worst thing you can say about it is just, it's just blah. Now, again, I haven't seen Cars 2. Maybe Cars 2 will have the same effect on me. I don't know. But I, it, Cars, which I've seen billions of times, it it has a certain charm to it. That you know, and I, I am a car guy, so maybe that helps a little bit too. It's certainly not their best work, but Ratatouille is flat for me, flatter than Cars even. So that is my that is my bottom. And again, maybe it's not fair. Maybe I need to watch it a few more times and refresh myself on it. But just just given my personal impression of it, it doesn't stay with me. All right, Steve. God, I, I find it hard to come up with the the worst thing. Um, I can say which probably my least favorite film is, and it might not be a popular choice. I, I think the one that doesn't do it for me the most is probably Toy Story. Huh. And that's it's it, it's very cool. It was innovative for the time. Uh, I think the problem for me was I didn't actually see Toy Story until I had already seen A Bug's Life. Uh, I think it was after Finding Nemo that I finally got around to watching the first Toy Story. And um, <clears throat> so much of it is just Pixar finding their feet. And so it, there's so much reliance on the toy puns, which are good. They're funny. And they're timeless puns, as timeless as yes. puns can be. Uh, Lots of Joss Whedon jokes in that one, too. Right. But Excellent. at the same time, there's the narrative isn't that strong. The people look funky. Um, 
you know, I, I don't think the characters really come into their own until the second film in a lot of ways. It, it is it is them figuring things out, right? And it's not right. as sure. And, and I can forgive like, it for that. Yeah. But but it's just it doesn't it doesn't do the same thing for me as the other ones do. And it's it's largely because the narrative just isn't as strong and they haven't really gotten that whole uh they're starting to, you know, with the scene with uh with uh Buzz trying to take flight and not being able to do it and the the irritating Randy Newman tinkling along in the background. They're they're starting to get that sort of emotional resonance thing going, but it's just not really that strong yet. Right. Um and I, I think even Ratatouille, I think is is better for me. While I agree with you that it's it's kind of blah overall as a film, it it does have kind of a weird emotional resonance in places and and uh Somehow, for some reason, even though I'm not that invested in the character, that the scene where uh, the food critic eats the ratatouille and he's immediately brought back to his childhood, that that one nails me for some reason. It almost makes the rest of the film, uh, uh, you know, much more tolerable for me. And there's just nothing like that in Toy Story. I mean, it's it's just not it's not there yet. It's still great, but it's just not on a, on a par with the rest of the films. I was going to mention ratatouille. As well, um, there's a scene I'm thinking of in particular. Although you mentioned the critic is interesting, that is a really careful line they walk because there are movies where there are characters of critics, and they are savaged as being talentless people who do nothing but tear down other people's work. And every time I see that in a movie, I want to throw something at the screen because you know, again, criticism. Um, <laughs> because because there I in my, in my mind there is nothing um more classless than a uh a maker of movies getting revenge at movie critics by um by insulting them in their next movie and you see this ha- it, it it happens Ratatouille's depiction of that critic is right on the edge it's Peter O'Toole I think is the voice of the critic um because on one level, he is portrayed as being this just miserable son of a gun who hates everything and he's mean and, you know, and you can't please him. And and yet when you finally see him, um, there is that scene where he's taken back to the reasons that he always loved food in the first place and, and then he raves about it. And it humanizes him on one level where I kind of want to forgive it. On another level, though, I feel like what it's really saying is – if only critics would remember that they love watching movies, they would stop criticizing it and being so mean, which is just the biggest load of horseshoe <laughs> that you could possibly imagine. And, and, and uh, you know, honestly, it, as much adulation as I've heaped upon Brad Bird for The Incredibles, um, if, he, if, if he's the guy who hatched that concept, he uh, should be embarrassed for himself because it's it's – it's it's ridiculous. Um, people, you know, you know what? You're a movie maker. People are going to criticize your work. Suck it up. So anyway, that that scene offends me, and that's not the scene that bothers me the most in Ratatouille. The scene that bothers me the most in Ratatouille is the scene that I think undercuts the entire premise of the movie. I believe that they're in this fantasy world where a rat can grab onto a kid's head and make him <laughs> make food he, by a remote He's filled control. with hair. It connects to his limbs. It's amazing. <laughs> um, the hair pulls on his brain and his... Anyway. That alone should be what, a, a what, public health hazard. What undercuts it? Speaking a hair-stuffed cook. So public health hazard. It's the scene where they bring all the rats from the sewers of Paris into the kitchen because the kitchen staff has quit. 
and you th- and, and there's a moment where I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is odd because these are the vermin is now in the kitchen, but the rats are our friends, so it's okay. That part doesn't bother me. What bothers me is in an attempt, I think, to smooth out people's concern about rats in the kitchen, they show a scene where the rats are sterilized by being run through the dishwasher. And then the, the rats come out of the dishwasher, and I think what we're meant to think is, oh, what a relief, the rats are clean now. And instead, all I think is, wow, wet smelly, rat. smelly wet rats in the kitchen. And and at that moment, the entire movie just completely careens off the rails because I've I've it took me like 10 minutes to get back to accepting what this movie was because it completely blew me out of the premise. I, that, that Well, you apparently were unaware that Lemon Fresh Joy is actually a cure for the Black Plague. <laughs> wet rats in the kitchen. It's just the wet rats. It wasn't even the rats. It was the wet rats in the kitchen that just pushed me <laughs> over the edge. A wet rat will make your dinner now, sir. Mr. M- Mr. Film Critic or Mr. <laughs> Mr. Critic, who's a miserable SOB because he doesn't like anything because all he does is criticize it. Good news. The wet rats are making your dinner tonight. It'll be excellent. And the idiot kid who who is controlled by his hair. Anyway, so what I'm saying is that Cars is my least favorite of all the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but... You hate everything because you're a critic. No, I, I, you know, Cars just lays there for me. Ratatouille's got highs and lows. There's some good stuff in it. I like, I like some of those stuff with Remy the Rat and his family, and there are a lot of kind of rat jokes and the, you know, the romantic element with the kid and the girl and the it doesn't really work that well. But you know, some of the stuff with Patton Oswalt, uh, you know, he, he's likable and the the character is is interesting. Cars is the one that feels just kind of artificial and. And lame to me, um, but you know, and I still—it's fine. I have the DVD of it. It's not like I hate it, but I would rank Cars below Ratatouille. I just hate the wet rats in Ratatouille. Hate it. <laughs> Did I mention that? Did I? Anyway, I—I uh, I, want to thank you guys for being a part of this marathon. Yet another marathon, two-part incomparable podcast. Wow, um, we can't shut up. It—it it just can't. It can't end. Now let's talk about future. No. Let's talk about the shorts. <laughs> we'll mention all the Pixar shorts. No. I wanted to get to the shorts. Damn it. I forgot about that. That'll have to be if, in part if we, three. If there had been a pause in the action, I would have brought that up. In the third half of the show, car <laughs> talk style. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, anyway, so uh, Pixar makes great movies. And if you're a jaded, uh, childless person who has never seen them, what is wrong with you? Why did you listen to this podcast? But you should go see them now because they're generally pretty good, except for the ones that we said weren't. Okay. All right. So, um, thanks to everyone for listening. I would also like to thank my guest, Steve Lutz. Thanks very much. Thank you, sir. And John Syracuse, thanks for being here. Thank you. And until next time, I'm Jason Snell for The Incomparable. Thanks for listening. It's the it's the new hope of Pixar. A new hope, Toy Story. <laughs> see how see how this is flipped around now. Don't, now this is exactly what I say about a new hope. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't listen to that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs>